Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, we're all over the after-hours action. Shares of Broadcom, the chip giant on the move right now in the back of earnings. The company's call just getting underway. We'll break down all the big headlines from the quarter. Plus, grounded TSA screenings at our nation's airports falling to their lowest level in four months. So is there a big slowdown in the friendly skies? And later, a real ringer. Shares of AT and popping today, and options traders are betting on even more gains ahead. We'll break down the action and why. But first, that's right. You hear the sleigh bells roll out the holly. Pour yourself some eggnog. We are counting down to the most wonderful time of the year. There are fewer than 114 days until Santa comes to town. But is Christmas at risk this year? Problems piling up at the ports, disrupting the global supply chain, a massive labor shortage threatening retailers as they gear up for the critical holiday shopping season. Oh, and good luck getting that high-tech toy this year. The chip crisis continues to cripple the industry. So with just 114 days to go, are we setting up for a nightmare before Christmas? Guy Dami. Well, bah humbug to that, Mel. I mean, nothing keeps uh, the people from shopping for Christmas, quite frankly. And I think this year is going to be another record year. Now, you can talk about supply chain disruptions, what have you. People will find a way. Now, it's just a question of what retailer is best suited. You know, obviously, we've talked about Williams-Sonoma. I'm sure a lot of people want to get that uh, crock pot for their loved one. But that stock, bit of a double top, concerns me. Walmart, you can make a great case on valuation. Another situation where maybe we topped out a bit here. The one that sticks out like a sore thumb, not that I suggest doing your Christmas shopping there, because I know you won't, but Costco, uh, Jeffrey's just raised their price target today, I think 550 high in the street. Believe it or not, Costco and earnings in this holiday season is probably the one that shapes up the best. It's just hard to wrap things that come in bulk and put them under the tree. That's the only problem with Costco. But Brian, Brian Kelly, I mean, the problem is if the, if the crock pot isn't on the shelf because it's stuck in a container somewhere, you know, off the coast of China, you might bring your money someplace else and buy something else. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I'm more of an Instapot guy, but crock pot, sure, whatever you want to use. But the point being is if you can't get the product, then you're going to look for something else. So you look at stuff like what's happened over the last year. You look at the Baltic Dry Index, something we haven't talked about in a while. This time last year, Baltic Dry Index was at 1,200, spiked up about two grand normal season pattern. Today, it's over 4,000. You can't get the shipping space. You can't get the containers. Then once you get to the port of Long Beach or all these other ports, you got to wait in line to get it unloaded. Then we might have a trucking shortage. Then all of a sudden, boy, you don't have anybody to sell it to you when you go to the store or anybody to pack it when you order it online. So all of these things are going to be an issue as we approach the holiday season. And we talked last week a little bit about stagflationary environment. This is one of those inputs into it, to me, is why there's kind of a limit on how fast the economy can grow because you don't have that ability to meet the demand. So there is a, a ceiling on economics, but at the same time, you're going to be paying up for goods if you want them. You know, we talk a lot, Karen, about, um, you know, purchases delayed. For the holidays, it might not be delayed. It might just be purchases that don't happen. Are you worried at all about, about the robustness of this holiday season, given all the, the challenges we might face? 
Well, you're you're kind of a mean one, Mrs. Grinch. You know, sort of 114 days to go for Christmas, and now you're ringing the alarm bells. But I think you're right, and I was thinking of the exact same thing about purchases denied versus purchases delayed. And if you don't have the right gift for someone, you're not going to. I don't think you're as likely to get it later. So I would have thought that things would start to improve. I thought that about the autos when the supply chip, the, um, the chip shortage first started happening. It's going to be more, way more prolonged than I thought. So I don't know if we'll see that here in terms of transportation. I think so. The one factor that might get a little better is after September, when some of those benefits run off, we'll see if people return to work and some of those labor shortages will improve. That I don't know. But um, I, I think you're right to sort of be afraid of not only, you know, what were you going to do for your Christmas, but how are these stocks going to do? And I think that sales denied are not going to get credit in what would have been a very, very, very robust Christmas. So I'm a little concerned about some retailers. Some, I think, will fare much better. We also um, forget sometimes how unvaccinated a lot of the world is, particularly in areas where we are relying goods to come from um, the world's factories like China, as well as Vietnam, uh, the ports over there, Dan. Um, and, and maybe we're just not factoring that in. I mean, we've already seen the world's third busiest port in China shut down for a period of time because of a covid outbreak. They've since opened. But that really that really caused a, a lot of sort of snags in the supply chain, even for that short amount of time. Yeah, you know, one thing Chair Powell in the Fed has said numerous occasions over the last few months, he's used that term bottlenecks. And, and, you know, we've talked about just the fits and starts of this global economy, you know, getting back up and going and reflating in the same direction. And when you think about our reliance on some of those, um, you know, more underdeveloped, less vaccinated countries, I mean, this is going to be around for a while. You know, we're still dealing with Delta. Other parts of the world are, are at different stages um, of that. And there's likely to be more fits and starts. I'll just say this about you know, our economy here. When you think about consumer confidence last month, it was the lowest in six months. You think about this eviction moratorium in many states is going to be rolling off. Karen just mentioned expanded unemployment benefits for up to 12 million Americans are going to be less than what they were over the last couple of months. And we still have seven, eight or nine million Americans that were employed pre-pandemic that are not. Put all that together with a, a savings rate that's ticking lower here and money that really was that government transfer. I'm fairly well convinced that a lot of that Robinhood capital that we were talking about that was flowing into the market is now flowing into OpenSea and all these NFT marketplaces or whatever. And it might not be going to traditional retailers. You might be getting some JPEG from your kid for Christmas this year, <laughs> not some new iPhone or something like that. So to me, I just don't think it's a layup that there's this tremendous pent up demand for goods and services that we are expecting 18 months into this pandemic. I would love to see Guy's reaction when he, uh, quote unquote, unwraps his gift and finds a digital rock <laughs> from one of the kids, Guy. But I mean, if we if we you had made the case, Guy, that the consumer will find a way to spend. And I, I understand that there are plenty of Americans who are still employed, um, who are maybe even in a better situation now than pre-pandemic in terms of the leverage on their household balance sheets. Um, but at the same time, haven't we seen them spend? Wasn't there pull forward or is there more spending to come? 
No, I think that's a great argument you make. The pull forward is clear. clearly there is a pull forward. It's just a question of is there's going to be a reacceleration into the holiday season, and will that pull forward sort of be dwarfed by what is traditionally a period where people will spend if they have the means? And my sense is uh, they probably do. Now, one thing we should mention is the fact that FedEx and UPS are telling the story that you started the show off with. You know, those stocks have not performed well. They really should be the harbinger, the bellwether. If we're going to have a great season, and quite frankly, since May, neither one has traded particularly well. So maybe we'll take our cues from there. But while I'll say this again for the hundredth time, I've learned over the years, never bet against the U.S. consumers want to spend. If there's a way to do it, they will find it. So, Brian Kelly, what is your what is your top pick going into the holiday season, if there is one? I mean, your long coal. I mean, wh- what is it? <laughs> no, 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 no. I actually think there are ways to play it, right? So you got to think about, you know, you have one kind of the digital gift. So maybe somebody wants to get BK, a Pudgy the Penguin NFT. I'm happy to accept that if anybody wants to give that to me. But the other thing is, what can you get that's tangible? You're going to look for the things that are in stock. And what's in stock? Something that people make. So take a look at Etsy, right? I think there's going to be a lot of people that are buying macrame uh, potholders as opposed to maybe that new fancy whiz-bang technology that they can't get because you can get the macrame potholder. So Etsy is my pick going into the holiday season. Yeah. Karen, how about you? So for me, I think, you know, when we're dealing with limited uh, cargo space and port congestion, you got to go with the biggest players. So To me, Target is very big, obviously not as big as Walmart, but very big, but also has a variety of goods that you could do for Christmas. They do have interesting home stuff. They do have good apparel. So I think Target's going to have a fantastic Christmas. All right. For more on the outlook on retail as we head into the holiday season, let's get to former Toys R Us CEO Gerald Storch of Storch Advisors. Jerry, great to see you. My pleasure seems like a number of challenges facing the retail industry. At the same time, as Guy had mentioned, you don't want to bet necessarily against the U.S. consumer. So where do you come out on, on how this retail season will be? Look, of course, there are challenges, but the opportunities are going to way overwhelm the challenges. First of all, there's huge consumer momentum any way you do the numbers. When you take a look at what's going on with retail sales, look at the two-year stack. It's the only way you can do it because last year was during the pandemic. It's up double digits. That momentum is massive. Consumers have the money. They're spending it. The the government keeps fueling it. That's going to drive all the way through the holidays. I have almost no doubt about that. Secondly, some of the negatives or challenges are actually opportunities for many retailers. The stronger retailers don't have any problem when there are some shortages and inflation. They actually do better. They can raise prices, margin. Look at that gross margin number for a lot of these retailers. It goes way up. The consumer comes into the shop and they go, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have what you want. But I have this. And no, it's not on sale. We can't put it on sale. My gosh, we'd sell out in two seconds. We don't have enough of it. So retailers are going to do just fine during the holiday season. And finally, there's the better than last year syndrome. Remember last year? Last year was horrible during the holiday season for COVID. It was the biggest, you know, kind of lockdown conditions you can possibly imagine. People are learning more how to live with it for better or worse. And I don't think we're going to see that again. So a much better environment than last year way up double digits versus two years ago. I really see nothing but strength. I said that when the retail report came out for July. Some people said, oh, it's slowing down, it's down. That's only a weird month-over-month calculation. Year-over-year, it was still up double digits. And what happened? Every retailer, one after another, marched forward and reported amazing sales numbers. Some disappointed a little because they had very high expectations, but they were all way up, and we're going to see that for the rest of the year. 
Hey, hey, Jerry, so prior to the pandemic, I think on a show like ours, we might have been talking about a lot of these department stores and just kind of kissing them goodbye and just saying that their time had, had come and gone. And when you look, let's say, like a Macy's, it's up 100 percent of the year, up 300 percent from its pandemic lows. Were the stocks bailed out or were the business bottles bailed out or both? How do you think about some of these um, these department stores going forward? Well, you know that phrase, dead cap balance. Uh, I've seen nothing that suggests the traditional apartment stores have reversed their long-term strategic decline. Of every segment in retailing, their two-year stack that I've been talking that's the worst. It's by far the worst. Nordstrom couldn't even, with all the pent-up demand, they couldn't do, do better the last quarter than they did two years ago. Macy's did a little better, but it's still much worse, much weaker than a Target, a Walmart, a Costco, Amazon. We don't even talk about Amazon. My gosh, they're still the class of the e-commerce you know, business. Then you have Dick's and Best Buy. You have much better places to go. Those are great places to go because why they're consistent with where the consumer is going towards sporting goods, towards towards electronics. And of course, the home people like like Home Depot and Lowe's, that's gonna, just going to keep going. That's where the consumer head is right now, not yeah. department stores. This is their last chance. If they can't post a positive two-year stack and a good, healthy one this holiday, it's never happening. Jerry, I also wanted to ask you about who or what type of retailer you think has pricing power. I was speaking to Oliver Chen, the retail analyst over at Cowan last night, and he said that handbags, you could be paying 10 to 20 percent more on handbags this holiday season. That just that floored me. I mean, I'm not in the market for a handbag, thankfully, but (laughs) but I mean, I would imagine that would be sticker shock for a lot of people. Well, Luxury's got its own little closet way up here, you know, for people with lots of money. It's been doing great for a long time. They've been raising prices forever. Take a look at what your, your favorite uh, Birkin costs now compared to what it cost 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So they keep raising prices, and there seems to be people who have the money to spend it, particularly in the stock market. So I, I certainly think Luxury's going to do great. When I talk about apartment stores, I'm talking about traditional apartment stores, mm-hmm. not luxury. Luxury is thriving and will continue to thrive when you have a stock market. The number one. R squared. Number one correlate with luxury sales is stock market appreciation. So how could it not be strong? Yeah, we're at record highs. Jerry, good to see you. Thank you. Jerry Storch. Uh, Karen, I wanted to get to you on the back of, of that last bit of our conversation. Could the real real be a winner this holiday season? I hope so. It hasn't been a winner so far. That's been a lump of coal for sure. But I think that they're positioned well. I do think the circular economy is absolutely gaining a lot of traction. So they do have goods. They don't need to manufacture goods. And I'm optimistic as he's talking about luxury and handbags. That plays very much into real, real strength. So I'm hoping for a very good fourth quarter. I think they, they need a fourth quarter, a very good one, to get the stock back on track. And yeah. I think they'll get it. Dan, I want to ask you about Visa. Um, you flagged it earlier today. It's down 2.6%. Pretty much, you know, since its July recent highs, hasn't been doing too well. Yeah, and I think that might have to do with some of the deals that we've just seen over the last month or so. We saw Square pay $29 billion in their stock for Afterpay. That's a buy now pay later platform out of Australia. And then just last week, we saw the deal from Amazon with the firm. Now, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Amazon already has a buy now, pay later. They're looking to kind of get broader distribution for that. And that might kind of speak to a little bit of the fact that, okay, is this a sort of subprime sort of borrower who's looking for a point of sale sort of payment sort of thing? So, you know, any way you think about it, I think this is going to be a fascinating space to watch. It's not really fintech the way, you know, we think about 
technology enabling things. It's really about lending. And what does that do to transactions for um, uh, MasterCard and Visa? So MasterCard and Visa have rolled over. They're at least 10% off their recent highs. They've not confirmed any new highs in the S&P 500 in a while. Keep an eye on that. And also American Express is down a bit from its recent highs. All right. Coming up, the summer travel surge may be slowing down. TSA screenings at their lowest level since May. So what does it mean for airline stocks? We're breaking it down ahead. But first, we've got an earnings alert on Broadcom. That stock on the move after reporting the company's conference called Now Underway. We'll have more on that next. We're live from the Nasdaq market side in Times Square. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Broadcom, the chip stock on the move after reporting results. Let's get to Julia Borson with all the details. Hey, Julia. Yeah, shares of Broadcom slightly lower in after hours trade. The company did beat on both the top and bottom lines, but supply constraints appear to be holding back the semiconductor part of its business. Now, taking a look at that segment, it did miss estimates slightly. The infrastructure software business, however, did perform better than anticipated. That business bringing in $1.76 billion in revenue versus estimates of $1.69 billion. Now, fourth quarter revenue guidance also stronger than analysts anticipated. The company guiding to revenue of $7.35 billion for the fourth quarter versus estimates of $7.23 billion. Hawk Tan, he's president and CEO of Broadcam, he said in the company's release that the company delivered record revenues in the third quarter, reflecting our product and technology leadership across multiple secular growth markets in cloud, 5G infrastructure, broadband and wireless. He says we are projecting the momentum to continue in the fourth quarter. Now, the call is underway right now. Tan kicking off the call with some bullish comments about the fourth quarter, particularly when it comes to cloud customers. He's forecasting that they will upgrade. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julia. Thank you, Julia Borston. Guy, what do you make of this quarter? I thought it was a great quarter. Operating margins much better than the street was looking for up from a year ago. Uh, in terms of revenue, beat on revenue, beat on EPS. Valuation, listen, I think it's 17 times next year's numbers. Broadcom is cheap. The problem is, for whatever reason, it's failing at this 495 level. That's where we topped out at back in March, seemingly having trouble now. I think the stock should be higher. I think Coco Beware talked about it the other night on OA, which, by the way, Every Friday at 5.30, I watch it religiously. Um, but the stock, for whatever reason, is having trouble here. I think you got to give it um, a couple days, but I think the stock should go higher in the back of this quarter. Guy mentioned valuation, Brian Kelly, but are you better off in the chip space paying up for a company that has uh, more solid growth or has, a, has had a better run? Yeah, so in this market, momentum is king, right? So, I, you know, it hasn't really paid to necessarily go after the value in the particular sector. What I think is particularly dangerous about this, I mean, I, we had a false breakout, it looks like, um, above 500. Now you're talking about demand is being there. It's everything we just talked about. Demand is there, but you can't get the supply to meet that demand. Therefore, your growth is limited. So I'm with Guy on this one. I think you sit like a spider, wait for your next meal, and see if it starts to break out. But you don't have to do anything today. Here's the would you rather to that point, Dan. NVIDIA, a 54 times forward, or Broadcom, which is Guy had mentioned, about 17. 
Yeah, I much prefer Broadcom. And I actually think you go for the value here because if demand's not the issue, it is a supply thing. We know that that's going to come back online. And to Guy's point, at 17 times with consensus estimates for high single digits, earnings and sales growth next year, and they just guided up this quarter, it's cheap. And, and it's going to be those numbers are probably going to prove to be light. So, you know, I, I think that the deceleration that we're likely to see in NVIDIA because of the supply that they have had to meet their demand and the valuation, people are just crowding into it. So I'd much rather a Broadcom here. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Summer travel losing steam. TSA screenings dropping to their lowest levels since May. So what's in store for the airline trade? The traders are boarding that one next. Plus, AMCU later. The rented darling dropping recently as Wall Street and retail traders lock horns. Both sides of this brewing battle when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Airline stocks holding up today despite some signs of a slowdown at the nation's airports. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the details. Hi, Phil. Hey, Melissa, this is confirmation of something we've talked about on this show for at least three or four weeks. There has been a plateau in travel, and it's starting to pull back a little bit. You need some proof of that? Take a look at the TSA passengers screening levels. And we're showing you this because you can see that there was a peak in July. Since then, if you take a look at the levels yesterday, down 22%, the lowest since May 11th, 13th, somewhere in that range when 1.4 million people were screened the month of August, down 23% compared to 2019. That was a pullback compared to July as well. Two million passenger days, they had just nine in the month of August. For comparison, in July, there were 18 of them. And so when you look at what's happening and what we can expect for the fall, a couple of things to keep in mind. Delta has said that its flights between September and December they're likely going to be down about 22%, approximately. The airline capacity, as we reported earlier this week when we had the research firm OAG crunch the numbers for us, it's down 9.1% in the month of September. And this has the airlines, as you take a look at the major airlines uh, and these stocks and what they've done over the last three months, it has them all cutting their projections for revenue. Uh, there is a big investor conference coming up next week. That's when we'll hear from a number of CFOs and other executives. We'll get a better sense of their outlook uh, for September and for the rest of this year, Melissa. Bottom line is this. We knew that this was going to happen in September and October. You've got a combination of factors. Vacation season is over. People are going back to school. Kids are going back to school. And you've got a resurgence in COVID-19 cases that has forced a lot of people to either cancel their flights at the last minute or think twice about booking a flight. Put that all together and you've got a pullback in travel. Not a huge one, but mm -hmm. a pullback in travel at least in September and October. And let's see what happens with the holidays. Phil, when you say capacity is down 9%, is that um, period on period or is that, I mean, is that quarter That's year on quarter? Over year. Is it, it's That's, year on so year. September capacity is scheduled to be down 9.1%. And this is based on OAG looking at the flights that have been scheduled by the airlines. Now, this could change. They could pull it back even more, but it's down right now 9% for September compared to September of last year. That's really amazing, Phil, considering that, you know, September of last year was pre-vaccine and, you know, maybe yep. people were more reluctant. So is this, I mean, is this, how much of it is Delta and how much of it is just the airlines cutting back their capacity because of labor shortages? 
I don't think it's labor shortages. Okay. I think it's demand. I think when you talk with people in the industry, they're noticing that there really has been a pullback in demand. And I think that relates to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. All right. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau with the latest on that. Um, Karen, what do you make? I mean, is it too soon to jump to conclusions here? I mean, the airlines pretty much across the board are fairly optimistic going into the summer and going into the fall about the return of business travel, the return of the leisure customer. And, and here we are. Mm-hmm. I think at that time they had right to be optimistic, and I think that they probably scheduled more planes, more routes, and so talking about capacity, which is really you know the key here, I think that the capacity will be uh, uh, the little excess capacity, that marginal passenger not being there, that's rather damning for profitability or the or the attempt to get back to profitability. So. Even though the stocks have come down, uh, I'm not optimistic on them being able to maximize the revenue because of this. And if we think about September last year, that was sort of in between waves. So I think people were starting to feel better. And then we didn't see the real wave until the fall and into the winter. So I'm concerned about capacity. I used to be more concerned about the balance sheets. They pushed out maturities, so they do have room to run in terms of uh, not having debt payments. But I think that uh, extra capacity is going to hurt them. Yeah. Guy? It's interesting. I look at JetBlue, and by the way, I think you, you come to realize that the airlines sniffed this out in March. I mean, most of these airlines, if not all the stocks, <laughs> basically topped out in March. And I look at JetBlue, which traded up to 22 bucks ish in February of 2020, then obviously, like everything else, fell off a cliff, down to nine. Well, as Carter Worth would say, that move in this March was to the penny, that prior high, We've basically corrected 50% of that move that I just outlined, that basically 9 to 22. So for a trade, these airlines have discounted a lot of things we just talked about. So I think for a trade, JetBlue looks really interesting right here. What's the ancillary impact of all this, Brian Kelly, of travel slowing down? Right. So, I mean, hotels and car rentals and everything you do when you get off the plane. And I think those things are permanently impaired. Not only that, remember, we have very little international travel, and that is unlikely to come back anytime soon. Business travel is almost, I shouldn't say non-existent, but down significantly. And again, I think that's a permanent change. So I do think the airlines are are rather uh, challenged here. The one thing you can do if you want to kind of track this and say, all right, is is this demand or supply? You can look at airline prices. So use your favorite search engine, Google, or I know Dan likes Bing. You can use that and find out airline prices. And you'll see they have come down an awful lot this fall. Duck, duck, go, I think is Dan's uh, pick. But uh, Dan, where would you, I mean, you were mentioning Visa before. I mean, if you think yeah. of an American Express, for instance, highly leveraged to travel. A lot of the bulls predicated the comeback of AXP on this return of travel. And it doesn't look like it's returning as strongly. Yeah, I, I will tell you that that Zoom report the other night kind of uh, led us to believe mm-hmm. that, that you know, maybe that the travel stocks should be trading better because we're seeing less uptake there on, on future customers. I'll just say this, you know, Guy mentioned that the airlines sniffed this out uh, months ago, and Guy sniffed this out, I think, over 100 years ago with his co-author of the Dow Theory <laughs> white paper, Charles Dow, when he suggested, uh, and Charles, that the transports should be confirming the highs in the industrials, and we have not seen 
seen a new high in the, in the Dow transports in months. I think they're down about 10% from their recent highs here. And so to me, that's kind of troubling in a way. And, and, and so, you know, again, um, you know, energy, we're just seeing crude oil break that downtrend that that's been in. That could be more trouble for some of these transports. But it's not just the airlines. If you look at some of the rails, they're down about 5 6% from their highs. We already mentioned FedEx and UPS. So not a lot of great action there in the transports. All right. Coming up, pop the popcorn. The blockbuster battle over AMC heating back up. One top Wall Street analyst downgrading the stock. We're going to hear from him in moments plus. One of the most outspoken apes in this trade will defend his position. He'll make his case ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Wall Street summer blockbusters heading for a thrilling fall sequel. The action around AMC heating up again. And you've got a front row ticket to the action. Two men with very different takes on where this stock is headed. Matt Kors has some real skin in the game. He's long shares of AMC. He says it's heading higher from here. He, of course, is known as an ape. We're going to hear from him in just moments. But first, let's get to Chad Bain. And he covers AMC at Macquarie Research. Just downgraded the stock to underperform yesterday with a $6 price target. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Melissa. Appreciate it. Um, a big part of your note was highlighting sort of the, the obligations that AMC still has, even despite all its capital raises. Rent um, is one of them. How big of this issue is it for AMC? And, and how critical was that? And you finally downgrading the stock to an underperform. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, we, you know, for starters, for the past couple of years, we've been bulls on the space. We've been real, real believers that the streaming and the, uh, the PVOD won't disrupt this industry. However, what we've seen in the data in the past couple of weeks just tell us that the margins will be impaired fundamentally for these companies going forward. I think it's very difficult for them to get back to the margins that they had in 2019. So to your point, when we look at some of the obligations that companies that we cover uh, have to pay uh, in 2022 and 2023, it was just hard for us to continue to support AMC. We do have a 12 to 18 month target. But yes, it's the obligations that were the crux of our downgrade. And we're projecting them to generate zero free cash flow in 2022. We think they'll generate about 50 cents in 2023, but zero in 2022. And the data that you're citing that has rolled in in the past couple of weeks or so, that's all box office data? Because we knew, I mean, I would imagine that we, would, that we knew what the rent obligations were pretty much for, for the year well before a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's the revenue picture. So yeah. for the third quarter, we're projecting down 50 percent. That gets to down 35 in the fourth quarter. But then the big thing for next year, we're projecting down 15 percent versus pre-pandemic. Prior to this, you know, prior to our downgrade, we're looking closer to levels getting back to, uh, to pre-pandemic from an emission revenue standpoint. I respect that this is a fundamental analysis, Chad. That's what you do for a living. You have a model and you got to go with the numbers. But at the same time, do you acknowledge that the stock, even though, you know, your model may point to it, may never get to six, may not actually be an underperform in your universe simply because of the other dynamics going on? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've been looking at some of some of the other meme stocks, some of the other options that people could go into. I understand that the technical um, setup right now is pretty positive, And there's been a lot of people talking about that. Also, you know, with people going back to work post Labor Day with sports betting coming out, you know, there's going to be a lot more things that some of these retail day traders can look to do other than support AMC on a daily basis. And I think just the overall 
options for them could also hurt the story going forward from a meme momentum standpoint. Uh, So you're saying that meme investors may shift their focus to other meme sort of stories away from AMC. So even that part of the story could go away. Okay, Chad, great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Melissa. Chad Bain. And now let's get to the other side and bring in one of the biggest apes in this trade. Matt Kors has been trading the stock since the first big breakout. He joins us now. Um, Matt, I know that you guys, you, and when I say you guys, I mean the army of the apes, have, have said repeatedly that it's not a fundamental story. Is there any point at which you say the box office is simply not there and the stock won't go anywhere? It may not go all the way down to six, but it may not go much farther than 44. Yeah, so I I wouldn't agree with that just because of for many people, the millions of people who this particular story resonated with, the box office was not the reason why they got in. So I don't know why the box office would be the reason that they get out. Um, I respect I was looking at Chad and I respect a lot of what he said. And right there, uh, even a little thing I want to point out of like kind of his commentary was more of right now. It's a technical setup. Many of the quote unquote apes in this particular play, they're in for a swing momentum play to see if there's some sort of advantage of a short squeeze and the chance to make money on a pretty decent trade. So the box office, obviously, I hope that it comes back. I hope it's stronger than ever. But right now, that is part of the fundamental breakdown that not many of the people who are in the current trade are really focusing on at all. What's your current technical take on on where the stock is trading right now? I'm extremely, extremely bullish, apish on where the technicals are at. Honestly, from we have July all the way up until August, we're seeing a very bullish follow through. We're just seeing a beautiful cup and handle for all my technicians out there. And we're looking for that to kind of test in the 46 to 48 area and see if we could get a breakout. And once we get back into the 50s, we know just for the average duration of the shares that are out, are out on loan, excuse me, We have a lot of those people who all of a sudden they're going to start being underwater on the short position. And to me, that's where things get very, very interesting to see if there's some sort of pressure on them to start cutting before they really go underwater. And you never know. We could see an explosion like we saw in early June. Hey, Matt, it's BK. So, um, you know, I'm looking at the technicals. Yeah, it looks like it wants to break above 50. So let's talk about the other side. Let's say it breaks out, starts to run. You get the short squeeze. When do people get out of it then? Because we all know it's easy to make money, but it's hard to keep it. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree with that part. And here, that's where I think a lot of people have different opinions on where they do or don't. And to everyone out there, obviously, I'm not a financial advisor. I implore everyone to come up with their own trading plan. For me, though, in this scenario, I'll be using some of the various data sources to track what's actually going on with the shorts. And personally, for me, I'm looking for something as simple as following the trend and looking for the shorts to cover, not necessarily a price target. And I'm not saying that's a good or bad plan. I'm just saying that's my personal plan. Matt, great to check in with you. Thanks. Thank you. Matt Kors. Um, Guy, you got to feel for some of these analysts out there who still have to day in, day out, go with their research report that has a fundamental analysis when there are so many other factors at play in this story. There are a lot of factors at play. I mean, the short squeeze, I mean, I understand, but, you know, it's interesting. The stock average, recently, stock average is about 140 million shares traded a day. So if Mm -hmm. you're short the stock, you have ample opportunity to get out on a daily, if not uh, hourly basis. So, you know, I understand, I get it, people short, they're going to have to cover. But basically, on any given day, those shorts can cover in spades. So I'm not quite sure that holds as much water 
as as you, as the, the folks want to think. With that said, could it go higher? Absolutely. I mean, we live in a different world right now where, as you said when we started this, fundamentals really don't matter. So I'm not certain why they're going to start mattering now. Um, we've got an after-hours alert here on Beyond Meat that we're watching for. Shares are down after the company disclosed its COO left the company just last week. Um, the stock is now down by just under a percent at this point, but it follows a string of uh, C-suite departures over the past year or so. Um, Dan, where do you stand on, on a Beyond? Yeah, I think the, the way this came out, I guess the, the, the CFO left abruptly. Uh, it was announced days later. Um, and like you said, Mel, I mean, this is a company that's had a hard time holding on to some senior executives. Um, you know, I mean, trading at, what, 14 times sales, that sort of thing. It's just not that compelling for a company that loses a lot of money and they're not expected to be profitable for at least a couple of years. A lot of competition out there. And, and I mean, isn't the jury still out whether it's actually a good product or not? So to me, this one doesn't uh, interest me at all. Coming up, the SPAC market has come to a standstill, but there may still be a way to earn some money in the space. Karen is laying out why she is buying an underwater SPAC. And options traders dialing into AT&T as the stock pops in today's session. We'll tell you what was behind this move when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. After a red-hot start to the year, the SPAC market has slowed down in a big way, with just about $20 billion in deals announced since April. That compares to almost $100 billion in just the first three months of the year. And some high-profile names have taken a hit recently. Just take a look at the performance of stocks like Lucid Motors, Beachbody, Virgin Galactic in the last month. But while the market for SPACs might be slowing, there may still be a way to profit from the space. So, Karen, what is your trade? So the trade is, and this is fast money, but this is slow, free money, and potentially you're getting paid to take a look at whatever deals some of these sponsors come up with. So the SPACs are worth 10 bucks. If you don't like the deal that they come up with, you can sort of put your stock back to the company and get the 10 bucks. So there's a number of SPACs with high quality sponsors, high profile sponsors, like Michael Klein of Churchill. So CBII is one, Gary Cohn and Cliff Robbins have another one, and uh, Chamath has a number out there. So I've been buying them at a discount to 10, and the thought is I will sit on them. They have to find a deal by two years after the SPAC comes public. So Michael Klein has 18 months left on CBII, for example. Gary Cohn has only one year left on CRHC to come up with the deal. So I know that I'm going to get at least 10 back, so that's nice, but... I get a look at whatever deal they come up with. And they're really incented to come up with a deal. They make a lot of money if they come up with a deal. So I don't know if the market will turn or not, but I know that I'll have a chance to look at whatever deal they get. It may trade up on the announcement of the deal. And I have until the actual merger closes to decide what to do. If they, pick a, if they get a company and the market loves it and it trades up, I don't need to wait till the end. I can sell it higher. So I think it's a, you're getting paid an option to take a look at what they have. I think it's, you know, it's just, just forced selling. Too many levered holders of SPAC stocks. And so, you know, I'll sit around and wait and get paid to do it. Karen almost lost me at slow, but then she got me at fast when she said slow, <laughs> no. uh, free, slow, free, free. money, yes. BK. Um, mm -hmm. Too good exactly. to be true here. What, what's the catch in your view? 
Well, I mean, listen, the, the catch is that they can go down more, right? There's nothing necessarily <clears throat> guaranteeing that you won't get a seller that will go out there. Ultimately, you're going to get your 10 bucks back, so you might have to wait a bit and stomach some volatility. Um, but to me, I think, it's, I think it's a great play. I would almost think of it, if you're thinking about your portfolio, put it in your fixed income bucket. Probably better to do this trade than it is to buy bonds at this point. So I'd much rather be here because I've got a bond-like return with some type of a call option on top of it. I like that, a asymmetric return. Yeah. Dan, how about you? Yeah, I think Karen used the expression forced selling. And so if it's forced selling and we're looking at these things down, you know, two, three percent, you might want to wait until you get down 10 percent, because I just don't think the forced selling is going to end right here. And so we haven't had a meaningful sell off in the stock market in probably six months or so. And if that were to happen, there's a lot more SPACs now than there were six months ago and there's fewer and fewer targets that make a lot of sense or you would have already seen deals being announced so to me um you know i don't find you know 983 particularly compelling when i think the risk could be you know down to maybe nine if we had a broad market um decline but i do like the strategy i think it makes sense as as usual karen's like the smartest one on the panel here I would agree with that. Uh, coming up, shares of AT&T <laughs> ringing higher today. So what had options traders piling into this stock? We've got the reason when Fast Money returns. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out AT&T shares spiking into the close on rumors that Berkshire Hathaway could be amassing a large position in the telecom giant. CNBC has not verified the rumors, but they did cause the stock to pop. It also caused a stir among options traders. Mike Coe joins us with the action. Mike, what you see? Yeah, so we saw more than five times the average daily call volume in AT&T, and this is not a name we normally highlight as the, among the most active among single stocks, but actually it was ranked fourth among single stocks in terms of options, contract volume today right up there with names like Apple, Tesla, AMC, and BBIG. And the most active options were the weekly 27 and a half calls. Those finished the day slightly in the money. Over 93,000 of those traded for a little over 22 cents uh, per share uh, on average. And obviously buyers of those are expecting the bump that we saw today possibly to continue into tomorrow. If they hold those through expiration, they're going to end up owning the stock at about 27.72 per share tomorrow. I mean, if we think that the stock popped on these rumors, Guy, then you have to think that maybe some of the rumors would be true and it, or some part of it would be in that maybe AT&T is actually a value stock, that there is value in it. Do you think that is the case? No, because it's been a value stock for literally the last six years. I mean, it's been trading sideways to lower on a broader market that's been off to the races. And, you know, T-Mobile, which is obviously a competitor, I mean, just look what that stock has done when you compare it to AT&T. So I get the pop, and I'm sure people all get geeked up on the back of this, but it's, been, it's just been a horrible stock to own, dividend notwithstanding. So is it going to trade up to 28 and a half, 29? Yeah, maybe, but I'd much rather playing the game, would you rather TMUS than letter T? Well, yourself did it, but, I mean, it's, we're down the path already. The horse is out of the barn. Brian Kelly, what do you think of AT&T here? You know, on this one, I think I'm siding more with Guy. I'm an apathetic ape on this. I, you know, who cares, right? Berkshire's <laughs> underperformed for years, and so it was a little bit of a pop here. Is it really going to be – is this really the great, great stock to be in? Uh, it's, it's all for you guys, not for me. All right. 
Mike Coe, thank you. We'll see you in the next hour. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It is time now for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Brian Kelly, what do you say? Well, this one's for the aggressive traders. First solar, buy anticipating a breakout. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, I'm going to go with one of these facts, the Michael Klein one, uh, Churchill 7, CVII. Dan Nathan. No, I think that AT&T is fine. 7.5% dividend yield near those multi-year lows is probably okay. But I like Broadcom on the weakness. If you get weakness back towards that recent level, I think you buy it. I think that guidance was good, and next year is probably too low. Guy, you're going to stick around, right? Don't forget, you're sticking around. Of course I am. And since, since we're in, and since we're in the <laughs> holiday season, um, <laughs> most of you folks remember there was actually Yukon Cornelius that saved Christmas when he bailed out Rudolph and then Rudolph saved Santa. Yukon Cornelius, silver and gold, I know you know that. Well, take a look at Newmont Mining today, finally getting off the mat. See how I connected the dots there, Mel? I love it. <laughs> that does it for this hour, but do not go anywhere. As we mentioned, a special bonus edition of Fast Money starts right after this break. <laughs> 